This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is all about your assets and what assets you can keep if you happen to declare bankruptcy. From household goods to RRSPs, home equity, your vehicle, and more. We're going to learn about what happens to your personal assets if you declare bankruptcy in Canada. So if you're struggling with debt but worried what's going to happen to all of that stuff, well, Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, president, I might add, and a BC licensed insolvency trustee, says most people filing for personal bankruptcy actually get to keep all of their assets. So Blair, we're going to learn about what happens to your assets if you declare bankruptcy in this country. Can you start maybe, Blair, by explaining what it means to file for bankruptcy in Canada? Oh, sure, Elaine. So bankruptcy, it's a legal solution. It allow, enables people to get relief from their debt and get a resolution, basically getting back to a point where they owe nobody anything and they've got a fresh financial start. It's available to people who find themselves in a position where they can no longer manage their debt. And there could be a number of circumstances why they're in that position. From my experience, most of the time, it's just that, hey, life has intervened. Maybe they've lost a job or gotten sick or been impacted by a global pandemic or or gotten divorced or things like that. Uh, important thing to know is that bankruptcy is a right. And nobody can prevent you. No creditor can stop you from seeking the protection and relief of bankruptcy if you're unable to pay off your debt. Uh, bankruptcy generally takes a lot less time than people think. Most people think that bankruptcy is a six, seven, or 10-year process. Well, for most people, upwards of 80% of people, in fact, bankruptcy lasts nine months. Um, and during those nine months, they have to complete some key duties, pay a minimal administration fees, um, and then they're able to emerge from the bankruptcy, leaving all the debt behind. Uh, what's powerful about filing for bankruptcy is that you get what's called a stay of proceedings, which means you have immediate relief. So no creditor can pursue you for payments. They can't charge you any further interest on the debt. They can't take any collection actions against you. If you're being taken to court, everything grinds to a halt. So bankruptcy gives you this immediate, powerful protection from your creditors, um, and it gives you some peace of mind. Um, what's really interesting, too, and something I would have thought is you know, completely counterintuitive, you know, the general Coles Notes understanding of bankruptcy is you go into bankruptcy and you lose everything. And that's why people are so scared to reach out to even explore this option. Um, but what happens across Canada is just about every province and territory has various exemptions. And in BC, there's an excellent set um, of exemptions found in the Court Order Enforcement Act. And what this means is that if you file for bankruptcy, Theoretically, you have to surrender assets, but you don't surrender assets if they fall within provincial exemptions. And just right off the top, here's the, the, the summary of the exemptions, which cover most people's assets in their entirety. So it's actually quite rare for people to have to surrender assets if they're in a bankruptcy. 
Uh, so the provincial exemptions in BC, it's up to $4,000 for household furnishings and personal goods. And that's $4,000 at a liquidation or a garage sale value. So it's not for you to go out and buy everything again that's in your home. It's what if you had a garage sale, put things on your lawn. I don't think I've ever had a single client who had a garage sale value has more than $4,000 of personal items and, and household furnishings. Um, clothing and medical aids are exempt up to an unlimited value. So if anyone is concerned, they would have to lose, you know, a medical device, a mobility scooter, um, you know, anything that they need to get around. And, and of course, your clothing, I don't know how this, this would function if someone has to turn over their clothing to the trustee to file an insolvency, it just doesn't happen. So all of that is exempt. Uh, you're allowed an exemption of up to $5,000 for a motor vehicle. Uh, and that means that the vehicle is either worth $5,000 or less, or your equity in that vehicle. So the value of the vehicle, less whatever loans might be against it, uh, is less than $5,000. Uh, just a couple more here. Uh, there's a $10,000 exemption for tools of the trade. So anything you need to earn income. Uh, what I like about the insolvency system in Canada is there's a ton of common sense built into the laws. And it would just be completely against common sense if someone goes bankrupt and then we take away their ability to earn income. We take away their work tools, for example. So that's an exemption of $10,000 for any tools of the trade, again, at a liquidation or an auction value, what they could be sold for quickly. Um, and the last one that's in the Court Order Enforcement Act is about home equity. So in the province of BC, you're allowed between nine dollars and $12,000 of home equity if you file for bankruptcy. <coughs> So if someone files for bankruptcy and they've got a smaller amount of equity than either nine or $12,000, um, they're allowed to keep the home with no extra payments being made. And the difference of whether you get the nine or $12,000 exemption on your home equity is solely related to, well, where's the house located? If it's in the greater Vancouver or greater Victoria area, it's the higher exemption of $12,000. If it's anywhere else in the province, uh, it's $9,000. Uh, just one final set of, of exemptions, and these are things that are in the federal laws, so they're the same across Canada, um, is any amounts for RRSPs, for RIFs, uh, or for RDSPs, registered disability savings plans, um, those are all exempt except for any contributions in the year immediately preceding the bankruptcy, which most people aren't contributing to their investments if they're really struggling to pay their debts. So for most people listening, they're probably saying, well, you kind of covered everything that I've got. Uh, and that's generally what I see with clients is most people don't have assets that are outside of those exemptions. So them filing for bankruptcy doesn't mean they actually have to surrender any assets. So if you're thinking already, okay, I, I, this is the situation I'm in. It sounds like I could maybe move forward. This is the phone number for Sands and Associates offices. And a reminder, they have offices all over the province. It's 1-800-661-3030. They'll answer more questions, have a sit down with you, and you can really flush it all out to see if this is the next best step. Um, so Blair, just a quick question. Do you want to talk more about secured and unsecured debts? I sometimes think that, well, may, not maybe everybody understands the difference between the two and how that would affect you if you were in bankruptcy. Yeah, I think it's really important to talk about that, Elaine, because sometimes people make the assumption that if you file for bankruptcy, you know, all of your debt gets wiped away and the assets go as well. Um, and there's a really important distinction that you have to make between a secured debt and an unsecured debt. And what a secured debt means is that your creditor holds an asset as collateral with a lien or a charge. And the most common ones that we see secured debts are mortgages or vehicle loans. Um, 
Unsecured debts are simply everything else. So if the debtor, if the creditor does not hold an asset as collateral, by definition, that debt is unsecured. What happens when you have a secured debt um, is that that creditor who has loaned the money, they've got the ability to seize that asset back from you if you stop making payments. So if someone files for bankruptcy, um, they've got the option, they don't have to give up their car or their home if there's a loan against them, they want to continue paying it. Quite often people will decide, you know, I've got a car loan, the car is worth 25000 I owe 25000 on it, or sometimes even a little bit more, I'd like to just continue to make those payments. That's no issue if you're in a bankruptcy, the secured creditor will continue to be paid and they will have no right to come and seize an asset um, if you're continuing to make the payments on it. Uh, very commonly that happens with mortgages as well. So as long as a mortgage is in good standing, um, typically people are able to renew their mortgages, continue to make the payments on them, and they don't have any issues. Now on the other side of that, if someone said, you know, I've got a vehicle, it's worth $25,000 and I owe $70,000 on it, which trust me, I see more times than, than you would believe the number of, of negative equity vehicle loans. Um, or if they've got a home where the home is worth a certain amount and the mortgage is well above that, and they know if they were to sell that home, they would not be able to pay off the mortgage. Well, bankruptcy can give them the option to just walk away from those debts free and clear. Um, if the home was sold and there was a shortfall, not enough to pay out the mortgage holder, that would just be another debt that's included within the bankruptcy. So essentially, if someone is going to file for bankruptcy, what we'd want to do ahead of time is evaluate all of their assets, look at what's secured, what's unsecured, um, and then get a sense of really what their objectives are. If they want to retain the assets, continue to make payments on them, um, or if they want to surrender the assets as part of the proceeding, um, and then they wouldn't have any further obligations. But sometimes that's more disruptive because then they wouldn't have a vehicle or wouldn't have a residence or, or things like that. Now, one point to keep in mind um, is if you do have an asset that has some equity, so vehicles, um, again, if you've got that vehicle worth $25,000 uh, and there's an $18,000 loan that's against it, uh, what can happen is that you've got some equity there. You've got about $7,000 of equity. Um, we've talked about exemptions in the province of BC. You're allowed a $5,000 exemption on a vehicle, for example. So in that case, if you had $7,000 of equity on the vehicle, you would make an arrangement with your trustee to say, okay, the first $5,000 is my exemption. I want to keep this vehicle. So you just make a payment arrangement to pay to the trustee the excess equity. In this case, it'd be about $2,000 above and beyond what the exempt amount is. Okay. Um, and I know that a lot of people go, oh no, bankruptcy, that's not for me. I'm not in that kind of situation because a licensed insolvency trustee in Sands and Associates offers a really good alternative. And I know we just have a few minutes left in this segment, mm -hmm. but just in case there's somebody going, well, well what, what do I do if I can't do this? You've got it. Mm -hmm. You've got a great solution for them. Well, absolutely, Elaine. And anyone that listens to our show which should definitely understand, you know, a consumer proposal is the remedy of choice these days within BC. It's nearly 90% of consumers that work with a trustee um, are choosing to file a consumer proposal instead of a personal bankruptcy. And where a consumer proposal can make a ton of sense is if you're in that situation where you do have significant equity, whether it's in a vehicle uh, or in a mortgage, you know, the house is worth a lot more than what the mortgage is against it, but you're still having trouble paying 
your debts. When you do a consumer proposal, you by definition retain all of your assets. There's no so-called vesting of assets when you do a proposal, whereas in a bankruptcy, you know, theoretically your assets are turned over to the trustee, less any exemptions. In a proposal, all of your assets remain in your possession at every time. So oftentimes, if somebody has a significant amount of equity in a vehicle or in a home, we're not talking about doing a bankruptcy because they might not be able to pay off that excess equity in the short term of a bankruptcy. What we're often able to help them with is to make an offer to their creditors through a consumer proposal. So in many cases, a consumer proposal significantly reduces the debt, often down to 20 or 30 cents on the dollar. In every case, it gives you the same protection as a bankruptcy. Nobody has any remedies against you. They can't sue you, harass you for payment or take any any other steps. Um, and it's a very uh, attractive option uh, because it's a little less severe on your credit as well. So someone filing a proposal, you know, they stared down the most severe remedy of a bankruptcy and they made a different choice. They, they chose to file a proposal. So in many cases, when people have assets, uh, we evaluate, you know, whether a proposal or a bankruptcy is a better option, but it's not as simple as saying, well, if you file a bankruptcy, you lose everything. Uh, many people are able to retain all of their assets through the bankruptcy proceeding. And that's exactly what we talk about even in our first consultation. Uh, we try to give you very straight answers on what could happen to your assets if you proceed to reduce your debts. You can book that free financial consultation very easily. Here's the 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030. Or you can go to their website, sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. With us in this segment, super fun, Sandy Wolverton, who works for Sands & Associates. Uh, she's an estate manager, so she's working with the License Insolvency Trustee. If you happen to get an opportunity to sit down with one and start planning and thinking and, and organizing yourself, uh, Sandy may be also sitting in with you. Uh, so first of all, Sandy, welcome to, welcome to Dollars and Cents. Thank you so much. And um, Blair, I'll, is it okay if I ask the first question? Certainly, go ahead. Great. So um, why did you decide to become an estate manager? Well, I think, honestly, it was the best accident that ever happened. I, uh, I took business banking um, and accounting, and I just happened to get hired at a licensed insolvency trustee firm to do the trust accounting. Uh, and the, the licensed insolvency trustee there thought that I might be very good at actually meeting with the debtors and working as an estate manager instead. And once I started meeting with people, I just could not imagine ever going back to sitting in a cubicle with an adding machine. Nice. And, and that was a few years ago, Sandy, if, if you don't mind. I don't mean to, to date you by any means, but I, I know you're a very experienced <laughs> estate manager. So, so how long has it been you, you've been in this role? Uh, so it's 23 years now. I, oh. I started in 2020, May of 2020. 2000, I think you'd mean. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> May okay. of 2000, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's awesome. Um, and then, Sandra, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about some financial perspectives that being a debt help professional has given you, because I know a lot of people, certainly myself, before I came a trust, became a trustee, I made certain assumptions. I had, you know, certain thoughts that, okay, someone who goes through a bankruptcy, it must always be due to irresponsibility or mismanagement. You know, I had no idea a proposal even existed. I'm curious how your perspective has changed over the 23 years you've, you've been helping clients. 
Yeah, I when I started in the industry, honestly, I had the credit cards, I had the student loan, I had the line of credit. Um, you know, I I really thought that everybody lived paycheck to paycheck. I I thought that that was the norm. That that's how everybody got through life. Coming into this industry and taking the courses to become an estate manager and a um, counselor for insolvency really helped me learn that there isn't necessarily having to live in debt. You can actually learn to budget. You can learn how to manage your money a little bit better and actually start spending your money based upon what's really important to you and what you need to have versus what you want to have. And I've learned that for the majority of people, they're just like I was. They're just really good people who honestly don't know another way. We're not taught this stuff in high school. We're not taught this stuff in college or university. And if you think about it, your first day of college or university, when I walked onto campus, there was probably about 20 to 30 tents set up of credit card applications. I remember the same. Yep. <laughs> right? So all we're taught right out of high school is, hey, Get everything you want and get it now and don't worry about paying for it until later. So debt happens, in my opinion, to really good people. And I think that most people, when we use credit, we're using it with the best of intentions. And it just kind of gets away from us. Now that I've been doing this for so long, I look at credit like I'm selling my future. T tell me more about that. What do you mean? Well, I, I kind of look at credit as if if I'm going to purchase something on credit, right now I get up every morning, and this is going to sound probably a little cheesy, but I get up every morning and I come to work for you, Blair. I know you, right? Yep. I'm, I'm happy to come to work for you. But if I'm, if I'm using credit, even though I might answer to you, I'm actually working for the banks. Hmm. And I, I have a feeling that the credit card companies really don't care about me the way that you care about me. I hope I can guarantee that. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to work for the banks for the rest of my life, right? That's, that's not my goal and pay interest. And I kind of also look at it like that instant gratification. If you and I were to go shopping together and we'll just say that I wanted a new laptop for work and we're going to put it on a credit card, if you look at most people's credit card statements, by the time they pay off that laptop, they've actually paid for two or three laptops, mm -hmm. but only got one. And if you think about it, if the sales guy said to you, hey, Blair, you know, you can get Sandy this laptop and it's on sale today for $1,500, but for you, we're going to sell it to you for $3,000, there's no way you would have bought that laptop. Mm -hmm. But if you put it on credit, that's kind of what you did. Yeah, and I know so many of the clients that, that I meet with, you know, the, the debt is, is built up to, you know, say tens of thousands of dollars, but there's nothing they can point to to really show for that. So, you know, it's it's the, the consumption happened in the moment, but then the financial hangover can last for years or even, even decades in some cases. Yeah, and that's, that's part of, I think, today's society. You know, we, we do have a lot of people that are suffering from mental and physical health, and I think a lot of it is, we're carrying so much debt. Debt is a heavy burden to carry. And really, you're getting up and you're working. You're going to work today to pay for your yesterdays. And like, I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to work today for yesterday. Mm -hmm. 
And I, yeah. I want to just jump in. It's almost uh, impossible to avoid being bombarded with the urge to purchase now, get now, this is the deal, this won't last. I mean, we we get it from everywhere, especially if we spend any time online, let alone, uh, you know, reading papers or listening to the radio or watching television. I mean, it is literally everywhere. It must be, um, Sandy, I just can't imagine uh, the look on somebody's face when you sort of explain to them for the very first time that it doesn't have to be this way. Their life could be a little bit different taking these various steps. It must be unbelievably rewarding. It's incredibly rewarding. And it's, I'm a little bit old school, you know, dating me again, Blair. But I, (laughs) one of the things that I share with people is, I do the old, old antage, the envelope, right? So that laptop, I really want a new laptop. I know I can go to the store and I know I could use credit and I know I could get it today, but I'm going to end up paying a whole lot of money for it if I do that. But if I look at my budget and I decide, you know, hey, I'm going to take $10 out of groceries. I'm going to drive one day less this week and I'm going to take $20 out of my gas or, you know, figure out where I can make some cuts and I'm going to take that cash. And I'm actually going to put the cash in an envelope until I have enough money to go and buy that laptop. When you walk in and you walk in and you pay cash for it, the feeling that you have knowing that you bought that with your money is actually even better than the fact that you actually save for it. It's just like, hey, I don't owe anybody for this. I paid for it. It is mine. Hmm. It's a satisfaction instead of an anxiety, right? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Oh, that that makes makes a lot of sense. And, and and Sandy, I know you and I we spoke. I think I think it was last week we were talking about um, you know how some clients feel really ashamed about their situation when when they come in. And you and I know, having done this for a long time, a lot of people couldn't really have done anything different. Um, but you told me a, a bit of a personal story, if, if you don't mind sharing, uh, about, you know, I think your, your father had, had said to you, and I don't want to give away too much, let you tell the story, but, you know, well, what was your intentions? That's what really matters. And if things got away, it wasn't because you wanted them to. I wonder, can you share that with our listeners, you know, how you can help sometimes your clients feel a little less down on themselves about the situation they find themselves in? Absolutely. I'm, I'm extremely grateful. Um, you know, I, I always say my dad was my hero. And I know that a lot of people might say that. But for me, it's really, it's so true. My dad taught me so much and was just an amazing person. Um, and one of the things that he always taught us growing up was that, I don't know if you know the, the poem, The Man in the Mirror, but at no. the end of the day, as long as you know that you set out your day to, to make the best decisions that you could, to not purposely set out to hurt or to harm anyone, to be kind. The results of the day don't matter. Like whatever happened isn't what matters. It's what your intention was for the day. So if you can look at the person in the mirror at the end of the day and know that you did your best and that you didn't intentionally try to do anything wrong, whatever happened during the day doesn't actually matter. And I I say that to, to the people that I get to talk to every day that, you know, unless you can honestly tell me that, you know, six years ago on 
Tuesday, December the 6th, I woke up and I stretched and put my feet on the floor and said, today's the day I'm going to start making all the wrong financial choices. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, nobody does that. You didn't set out to be here. Every day, the choices you made were probably the best choice to make at the time that you made it or you wouldn't have made it. None of us have that crystal ball that tells us what's going to happen. Yeah, I remember speaking with, with uh, one client in particular, um, and you know the reason they were in debt was because the family's income was reduced so significantly. Um, and at the end of the day, it's like you're here because you made the right choice for your family. The right choice was not for the family to starve. The right choice was for you had to utilize credit to keep your family, um, you know, supported and alive. And and you know it wasn't your uh, your fault that you know the job was lost, the income was lowered. You know, we're going to help you deal with that, and we have to plan for the future. But, you know, absolutely, that person just needed a little bit of validation saying, yeah, it was the right thing uh, to put groceries on the credit card, you know, even when they, they knew this might have created a bit of a problem down the road. The alternative was, well, the family's not going to eat. and that, That's not the right decision. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Sandy, we're going a little bit short on time. I wonder if I can ask you to, to stick around. We'll do um, a second segment here. Would that be okay with you? For sure. Okay, we just got about another minute here. I was wondering um, if you'd be able to give just a brief thought. Are there any trends that you're seeing recently? Uh, what do you think that that's going to bring to the consumer? Just briefly, as we finish up here, I really think that with the interest rates going up uh, and with a lot of people overextended on their mortgages, I, I think that a lot of consumer proposals are coming. I think that people are going to be overextended on their mortgages and. I, I really hate to see it, but I'm worried about foreclosures. Hmm. We haven't seen those in a while. So, yeah, maybe that's coming in the future. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, we'll pick this up on our next segment. You want to take some action based on what you've heard from Sandy so far in terms of looking after yourself a little bit better and looking at a consumer proposal or looking at bankruptcy or just even getting your budgets, etc., in place and working for you. 1-800-661-3030 is the phone number uh, to get that first sit down. And we'll be back with more with Sandy Wolverton, who is an estate manager with Sands & Associates. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates helping you get out of debt. Second part of a two-part series we're doing this uh, in this session with Sandy Wolverton, who is an estate manager uh, with Sands & Associates. Always a pleasure to talk to staff people. It's so interesting uh, to get their perspective on, on the particular work that they do. And first of all, Sandy, I want to welcome you to Dollars and Cents. Thank you. I appreciate that. And as I mentioned, you are an estate manager. How long have you been doing that work and and working uh, in in Sands & Associates? I have been doing this for 23 years, and I have been with Sands & Associates for a year. Wow. Oh, wonderful. Okay, great. So um, first question, what's the most rewarding part of your job in what you do? What's the most rewarding part of it? The best part, honestly, for me is hearing the relief in someone's voice and seeing the relief on their face. That keeps me going every day. It must be quite something to be a part of that process for that particular person that they're, that they're seeing for the first time the possibility of getting out of debt and being able to sort of function a bit better. It's 
it's unexplainable. I, I honestly don't have any words to hear somebody say, you know, I slept for the first time or, you know, I, it's been months since I've been able to eat a full meal. Just that knowing that and that you have a part in that is, there's just nothing better. And I wonder, Sandy, because I think many of our, our listeners, they might not have had the chance to, to work with, with a trustee or specifically work with SANS and Associates. Can you talk about how an estate manager works with, with a client? You know, how do they work in tandem with a trustee? What, what does it look like and how do you re, uh, relate to your clients from the first step and then forward? Yeah, so typically when somebody calls our office, um, an appointment is booked, and that's usually with an estate manager. So we get to chat with them about what's happening with, with them, what their debts are, how we can help. Part of my role and my responsibility is to ensure that I have explained all of the options that are available to somebody who has debt, uh, explain how all of those options work, and then I get to talk to them about the options that we offer here at Sands & Associates um, and explain to them how those options might actually fit and help them. Uh, for most people, it's a relief to know that bankruptcy isn't the only option available. Um, I would say that 90% of the people that I talk to uh, when I talk about a consumer proposal say, I'm, I didn't even know there was such a thing. I had no idea that there was anything other than bankruptcy for me. Once we've kind of gone through that information, um, we work together to gather documents. Of course, it is a legal proceeding, so we, we gather some information. And then I get to work with one of the lovely trustees who uh, they overlook my work, uh, and we were able to file a consumer proposal or bankruptcy for individuals and get them that, that help that they need and that stay of proceedings, which is basically what tells the creditors to leave the individual alone and, and that they're seeking help. Yeah, and in many ways, that's the, the step when they start to get their life back is when it's, hey, it's the no longer the 20 collection calls a day or the 30% of their wages being taken uh, as soon as they've worked with you and the trustee to sign the documents. And, you know, we spring into action and, and we, again, try to give them their, their life back, a reasonable standard of living, a reasonable, uh, you know, stress-free uh, experience in dealing with their debt, which can be night and day different to what they were doing before they, they reached out to us. Yes. I wonder, Sandy, are there any examples you could share with our listeners, maybe a couple of folks, maybe you've assisted recently or even in the past if something jumps out? I think it's always so helpful for someone to know, well, what's the situation of someone that came to see you? Um, you know, how did you work with them? Uh, and then how were they after? So uh, anything that ju jumps out to you, you could share? There's one that um, is, is probably back to 2014 or 15 that will stay with me forever because it was just... Um, it just touched me in a way that I, I don't think anything has ever touched me since. Um, I met with a young couple who could not have a child naturally. Um, and they had cashed out all their RSPs. They sold their home, spent all of their savings, uh, and eventually used all of their credit trying to have a, a child, right? Uh, that was their dream. And when they finally came into my office, they were just under $100,000 in debt um, and had basically given up on their dream and were really 
really upset with themselves, really beating themselves up, thinking they were terrible people that they had used their credit. And again, I had that conversation with them. Like, I, I don't, I don't see you as being terrible people. I see you as being people who desperately tried to realize your dream. And I, I don't see anything wrong in that. Um, we did end up filing a bankruptcy. Um, they did have what's called surplus income. And so it was a 21 month bankruptcy. I did do their counseling session. So their second counseling was at about six months. And when they came in, they were feeling better about everything. And their family had all rallied around them and come up with enough money to give them one last chance at getting pregnant. Uh, I was really happy for them. I was, you know, there was hugs, there was tears. It was, it was great. Um, And then that was the last time that I saw them. Uh, They got their discharge at the end of 21 months, and they came into the office unannounced, unexpected. Uh, I had no idea, and they came in pushing a stroller. I was waiting for that happy ending. Wow. (laughs) Well, and I just remember, like, just seeing them, and I literally broke down crying. I was so happy for them, and for me, what it was, was she grabbed me, and she hugged me, and she said, this could have never happened without you, and I just, I remember looking at her and saying, I had nothing to do with this like this was this has nothing to do with me I'm not a doctor like I had no part in this and she said if you hadn't let us get out of the stress that we were under this Mm -hmm. could have never happened and that one sticks with me always because they I remember they took a picture of me holding the baby and they said like this is going to be the picture because we'll always remember that you are the reason that we got our dream so that one is going to stay with me forever of course. What right. an example to share, Sandy. Of course, that one would, would stick with any right? professional. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that one I hold very dear and near to my heart. Um, yeah. I, I still cry about that one. Like, I almost started crying to sharing that with you because it's just, it's very special. Yeah, not not going to lie. I had some tears well up myself here. So, yeah, it's a very powerful story. Right? That's great. Yeah. And, and yeah. if there's another one, we still got a couple minutes. We'd love to hear it. Yeah. Recently, um, well, actually, just Earlier this month, I I did get a phone call. Um, It was an uncle calling uh, for his niece who had just gone into treatment, really going through a rough time. Um, And of course, the creditors are calling and, you know, she's she's trying to get her life back on track, right? She's she's doing the things she needs to do to get her life back. And he just wanted some help for her. And I, I just said, you know what? Like, absolutely. You tell me what works. I will make my calendar work to talk to her when it works for her because I know she's in programs and classes throughout the day. So we set it up. um, And I remember when I spoke to her the first time, she was, she was very emotional, you know, really fearful, really scared. Um, And when we had our second call, and I don't even necessarily remember saying this, to be honest with you, but when, when we did our, our, our final meeting to sign her, her document, she said to me, she said, you know, I'm here today, honestly, Sandy, because you said to me, that it doesn't matter where I'm at or why I'm at where I'm at, that I matter, that I'm important, and that I'm right where I'm supposed to be today. And oh. so she was still in treatment because I guess the words that I said to her made her believe that she was important enough to get clean and sober and stay clean and sober. And That's I don't awesome. remember necessarily saying those words, but I just, again, I cried with her in her, in her signing appointment because I was like, thank you. Like, 
I, I believe all of that to be true. And you are right where you're supposed to be today. And you are important and you are valued and you need to take care of yourself. But like to tell me that you're there because of me, that's touching. Mm-hmm. Well, Sandy, I know we could we could speak to you for the entire show, but unfortunately, we're running a little bit out of time. So maybe I'll I'll give it back over to Elaine. But, the, but thank you so much, Sandy, for for participating today. It's just just wonderful. I think the listeners will definitely get a lot of insight out of what you've said. Thank you. Go to their website, sands-trustee.com. The phone number 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents this segment. It's all about getting loans and more with a co-signer. Uh, and this is this is information that both the person who is wanting the co-signer and the co-signer. Really important information. It's all about understanding the pros and cons of that co-signed debt. Uh, Blair's going to explain there's a lot both would-be borrowers and their co-signers must consider before getting a co-signed loan or other type of credit together. Uh, so Blair's going to outline it all. And I think let's start right at the very beginning, Blair. What does it mean to co-sign a debt with someone else? And what are the pros? What's the good news about this process? Well, co-signing a debt with someone means that you're agreeing to be equally responsible for the debt. So if the other person doesn't make their payments as agreed, you're the other pocket, so to speak, that the creditor is able to dig into. Uh, the moment you co-sign a debt for someone, you are have the same responsibility um, as the original borrower for paying it back until it's paid off. Um, what are the pros of co-signing? Well, it can be useful in that it gives the person who wants to borrow the ability to get credit that they wouldn't be able to otherwise get absent the co-signing person. And, you know, really that's the only benefit to it um, because in general, co-signed debt can give a whole lot more potential cons than pros. And sometimes I, you know, encourage people to think, well, you know, maybe the bank knew something. You know, if the bank is not willing to approve you without a co-signer, maybe the bank is looking at your situation and saying, you know, this loan is not going to end well. The banks are pretty good at protecting themselves. So sometimes you definitely want to take a pause if the only way you're able to achieve the financing that you want is to get a co-signer, you know, is that going to be good financing for you or is it going to be something that causes a problem? So as a debt help professional, I always suggest that people proceed with extreme caution before they agree to co-sign or to co-borrow with another person, because although everybody's intentions might be good, uh, life happens. And as we know for, from this show and from, from, from myself helping clients over 15 years, there are unexpected events that can create unanticipated financial challenges. And what some people don't realize is that when you co-sign a debt together, both parties are equally responsible for repaying 100% of the unpaid balance to the lenders. So you may have some personal understanding saying, you know what, no matter what, you co-sign this, but I'm going to pay you back. You know, you're never going to be responsible for it. But the bank is able to demand that anybody listed in a loan or an agreement repays the entire balance. There's no sharing 50-50 or there's no saying, well, I co-signed, but they promised they would never make me pay. It's called joint and several liability, which means a co-signer is just as responsible for the full balance as the original borrower. And in some cases, some types of lending agreements have an acceleration clause, which allows the lender to demand immediate full payment uh, of the entire balance if a borrower breaks any part of the agreement, such as missing payments. So you really want to be careful because co-signing for somebody else, if they start to miss payments, um, it can impact your credit rating. Um, it can impact 
um, you know, your financial commitments. And it could be a situation where the entire balance of a debt becomes due at once because the original borrow has started to miss payments. And you might not have even been aware of that. That's amazing, right? And that's the biggest thing I was so, I remember being so surprised when you explained that for the first time. Be, it's, it stopped, it stopped me cold. I thought I, I could never do that for that reason that there's so many unknowns and, and it's so, well, anything could happen, as you said. Uh, and before we go any further, I just want to throw in the, the phone number for Sands and Associates. If you already know that you're entertaining this or some other idea to help somebody and you want some, maybe some other advice or more advice. 1-800-661-3030 is the phone number or check out the website at sands-trustee.com. So um, Blair, do you want to go to the part about explaining some of the details around the liability for co-signers? Sure. Let's let's talk briefly about that. Then I want to make sure we also talk about married couples because there's some misunderstandings there quite okay. often. But Great. in terms of some major categories of debt where you know there could be some co-signing relationships, um, credit cards are one where you need to be careful because the primary cardholder is always responsible for paying the purchases made by additional cardholder. But you can't assume that only being a secondary cardholder um, automatically makes you not responsible for debts that you didn't incur on that credit card account. Um, some card terms state that secondary cardholders can be held responsible for the entire outstanding balance, uh, even if the original credit application wasn't signed by them. So if you do have a shared credit card, you want to make sure you're communicating very clearly, you're reviewing the monthly statements together, uh, and make sure everybody's aware of payments being made or missed. Um, with a loan, you want to be very clear for how much the loan is for, what you're co-signing, and whether the loan's terms allow the borrower to increase the credit amount. So you might have co-signed a very low amount, but you didn't realize that that loan was open-ended and the person was able to borrow and increase those amounts. And suddenly the $5,000 debt you thought you had guaranteed is $15,000. And now when the person defaults, it's a much bigger impact to you than you had ever contemplated. Um, so again, you want to be very careful. You look at the terms of loans. Uh, the final is just on vehicle financing. So I see this again and again. Sometimes people don't even think twice when they're financing, when they're co-signing to finance a vehicle with somebody else. Say the other person's going to insure it. They're going to pay the maintenance pay the gas and everything. But if that person starts to default on those payments, suddenly again, that liability becomes as real as if the person who's co-signed had bought the car themselves. Um, so you really want to want to consider, well, what's the potential downside? Um, and again, is it wise to allow this person to get financing where they couldn't get it on their own? The only way they can do it is by putting your you know, good reputation, good credit on the line as well. Okay. In the last three minutes, then let's talk mm -hmm. about, uh, if you're married or in a common law relationship with someone, what kind of debt liability exists in that relationship for folks? Almost zero is the answer. And that's the opposite of what people think. So most people think you marry somebody, you marry your debt, but that's a very common myth and it is a complete myth. A lot of people misunderstand their legal obligations and couples can make the wrong decisions thinking that all of their debts are joint. So the facts are that relationships alone do not make you legally obligated to repay someone else's debt. Um, other than marriage, um, you could be responsible for, for, um, 
for debts that were triggered together if you co-signed or co-borrowed together, um, or if a debt is divided as part of a divorce, but you just being married doesn't mean anything that your debts are suddenly joint. Your spouse or your common law partner is not legally responsible to your creditors, and no family members are responsible solely by virtue of being a related party. So you don't need to worry about inheriting debt or leaving debt for a next of kin or anything like that. So you and your spouse might share many things, but when it comes to debt, you remain very separate individuals unless you've specifically co-signed together. You each have your own credit history. You can take steps to deal with your debt independent of your spouse. Um, and even if one person has to file a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, I get this question all the time, it has zero impact on the credit rating of the other person. So it's generally the smartest thing for a married couple or a cohabitating couple to just keep their finances separate. It's only if when they get married, they suddenly start to put everything together and co-sign everything and have joint accounts, that creates the liability, but the act of marriage does nothing of the sort, does not create any joint liability. Okay. And as we close out this segment, I know you've got a whole list of good tips and recommendations for folks. Is there like, like the top five things that people should pay attention to? Well, let me give you the, the top one thing, I think, is the most common way I see people getting into trouble is they're trying to help yeah. somebody out of a tough yes. situation, and it's usually co-signing a consolidation loan, okay? And generally, a much better outcome is to help the person get set up with a licensed insolvency trustee, and instead of doing a consolidation loan to pay everything back, do a consumer proposal to get that balance reduced. If then you want to help the person pay off their proposal, that's great. It's not creating any liability for you, and it's probably saving collectively. Um, you and the borrower tons of money because the proposal will be a reduced amount of repayment. So a better option than helping somebody consolidate is help them work with a trustee to file a proposal. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.